and welcome to the Inside Out Security Show. I'm your host, Cindy Ng, and I'm joined by security practitioners who will introduce themselves and tell us where they're based. Hi, this is Mike Buckby, and I am based out of sunny Virginia Beach, Virginia. It's a commonwealth. It remains to be seen if that's part of the GDPR. We do things our own way here. Hi, this is Chris Kaiser. I'm based out of New York City. Hi, this is Killian, and I'm based out of Philadelphia, PA. Hi, this is Will Priestley, and I'm based out of uh, London in uh, what is strangely sunny UK for a change rather than rainy UK. As always, our housekeeping announcement is if you're a regular listener and enjoy our show, please go to iTunes to rate and review the Inside Out Security Show, and we'll put you in the running for a deck of our InfoSec cards that's based on the Cards Against Humanity card game. To learn more, please visit veronis.com slash review. So let's go to our very special show today. I say special because a year from now, May 2018, the new European law, General Data Protection Regulation, will be in effect. And before individuals and businesses, that's without EU offices, tune out. If you're based in the U.S., Australia, Africa, South America, Asia, and are collecting, handling, processing, transferring, and storing and destroying EU consumer data, you need to pay attention to GDPR. And it was polled in October of last year, 80% said that they knew little or nothing about GDPR, and 97% said that their companies didn't have any plan to implement the new regulation. And so we have a lot of work to do. And as tech people, we're required to carry out a lot of the articles stated in the regulation. And businesses often dislike regulations because it feels like it might hamper businesses. But IT people, if they put their creative hats on, I think we can change some of the ways that we've been doing business and maybe even make it better. So guys, put your consumer hats on so that we can start by talking consumer rights. And one of the main uh, principles is that consumers need to be informed in clear and plain language when businesses are collecting, handling, and processing data. What is something that you've seen that's bad or a good way to communicate to a consumer in clear and plain language that you're collecting their data? And when I say bad, it can be it's an annoying notification because we're bombarded with notifications or good because it's a good user experience and non-intrusive way to notify somebody something. For me, at least, it seems like every single uh, web page I, I go to anymore, especially collecting articles for this show, I get a million little pop-ups telling me that they're collecting cookies. And they want me to click a K and you know a million different things to approve that you know they're going to collect cookies on me for reading these articles. So it's a little bit annoying. I don't know if there's a better way to do it. Good point. I, I think for me... One of the flaws that I generally see is people try and give you like a long terms of service or a really over the top, you know, 50 page explanation, which I think no one's going to read. I've always found that be an incredibly faulty way of doing it, because if you want them to actually understand what you're doing and get the point, you can't expect them to read a novel on the topic. You have to kind of break it down and, and give it individual bullet points about what's actually happening and make it ingestible for somebody who doesn't have, you know, education in you know, security and the ramifications of it. I think it was an interesting point you raised around the cookies. I think that's probably what it's going to be looking like for GDPR privacy statements on websites that people visit. 
I was going to bring up actually Zapier. Uh, Zapier is a service that lets you connect together lots of different services. So they have a lot of data flowing through them. And so it's really important that people understand like what is happening with everything. And so they have um, what they describe as a plain English terms of service, like directly alongside their legal terms of service. And it's very interesting. And it's for exactly that. So they have this very clear legal thing and that's really what's binding. And they sort of have their explanation of like, well, here's why we have this and like how it's described and to put some more, I think the why instead of just like the what is going to happen, uh, I think is really important to convey to consumers and to everybody. And the next cornerstone for consumer rights is correction and erasure. It refers to a consumer's right to make changes to inaccurate data and consumer right to withdraw consent and to ask for personal data to be deleted. Uh, right now, I don't like to have to email someone to ask for an official change for something because who knows if they'll ever respond and I'd have to call and be put on hold. What do we have now that's really annoying to you guys when you see data that's incorrect or data you think you'd want to be deleted? Um, so, so I was actually reading a thing online this morning and it was in an SEO forum and this person was begging for help. They were, so six years ago in high school, a cyber bully, someone made this like horrible meme about them that said all these fake things. And it's the number one thing that comes up when you Google their name. And so this person is trying to apply for jobs and having a lot of trouble and finds out that, oh, the HR groups are like, you should probably take care of this and doesn't know what to do, doesn't have any recourse. And I think that's, you know, this sums it up that something that was out of his control six years ago is now a point of contention and is affecting this person's life in a negative way. And there's no recourse. And so this is, I think, just about giving people handles into, you know, controlling their own information about themselves. That's, and that's exactly it. That's the whole reason that that legislation came up was to, to kind of protect the individuals from having their personal lives negatively impacted due to whatever information about them is in the public domain, whether it's, it's true or not. Of course, if it's in the public interest, it's never going to be deleted. But something like that example is, is exactly what it's, what it's designed to do. What would you guys like seeing in terms of data corrections and deleting? Like, I imagine myself being able to log on somewhere and have a quick edit tab for me to edit my information. I like the idea. I think it's logistically very difficult depending on how far the information is propagated over time. I mean, if you have, say, a news story or a meme about you, it's almost impossible to guarantee that it's scrubbed from every single corner of the internet. I'm not sure if there's a good one-click or one-stop solution for that. You know, the, 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 the way that information travels these days, I don't know. I guess there's no real one answer for that, you know. You can obviously have corrections issued. You can have uh, websites take down data, but there's always things that are caching it. You know, Google's caching a lot of stuff that's out there that may take time to be completely destroyed. There may be sites you don't know about that still have that information. Again, really hard to completely wipe that off the face of the Internet. Along Chris's point, and I'll play devil's advocate here, the first thing that I think of is, you know, how far does that right um, to edit your content or, or whatever it happens to be extend? You know, consider the fact if, you know, maybe a news article gets printed about you or your organization that, you know, maybe you got uh, in trouble for doing something or some bad press. Do you have a right to go back then and ask that to be corrected or deleted? Uh, it 
it becomes a record of fact at that point. So how far does that editing right go? There's a, a, a well-known case that was brought against Google by a, a Spanish guy a few years ago where there are some, some bad news articles about him. I think it was to do with um, financial fraud, if, if memory serves. But, you know, he he was generally, there was a legal case and it, it was in the public interest to have that out there. But then after a few years, he said, this is 10 years old. It's impacting my ability to get a job. And therefore, he invoked his right to be forgotten. And he, he brought a legal case to Google and had to get them to remove his data from all websites, all news articles, like the BBC had to get rid of their news articles. And it actually made a huge case around, um, you know, the impactment of, of free speech and freedom of the press and all of that. But at the end of the day, the European Commission and, and, the, and the legal team that was bringing the case decided that this individual's personal rights, you know, were being badly affected. His personal life was affected and it was more important that he, he was able to do that. And I think from the, off the back of that legislation or that piece of uh, law, that's what, that, what, that's what fed into the GDPR right to edit and, and remove your data. I think there's, it's just all gray area. I don't think there's any of it that, that's clear cut. And the things I think about are like um, Beyonce was that she performed at the Super Bowl. And of course, like if you take any random frame of uh, a video of someone, they look ridiculous. And so she's dancing and there's this super funny looking picture of her that they took. And then her management company wanted that deleted from the internet. And that's not something that's horrible. And I think it'd be very hard to show that like Beyonce's career as queen of the world, no offense, Will, <laughs> was affected. <laughs> you know, it, it's still, where where does something like that fall? And my, my last thought was just going to be that, you know, we're talking a lot about removing something from a whole bunch of websites. But in most cases, what people really want is just it removed from the index of those websites. So it can't be found that if it's removed from Google, it almost doesn't exist anywhere else because no one else is searching. You can't find it on Alta Vista? I looked on Alta Vista. I looked on Spiderweb, Lycos, so much stuff. But So when, when Mike decides he doesn't like Teslas anymore, he's going to ask for uh, his right to be forgotten so he can only be a Fisker guy from now on out. <laughs> Ooh, what about he didn't really get plastic surgery on his nose in Brazil? <laughs> Who knows? I can do a lot of things. Let's go into access rights too. consumers right to know what's been collected and how it's been processed. And I really like this because I want to know all the different places that have my personal information and exactly what they have. Do you think this will put data brokers out of business? This Past week, I just got back from the Gartner uh, Security and Risk Management Conference, and GDPR was one of the biggest topics that came up. And the general consensus was kind of really two things. One, uh, companies in general are looking for ways to make more money and monetize the data they are collecting, but that would put them kind of directly in conflict with this. And right now they're in kind of a very tenuous state where they want to continue to make money uh, off of the data that they're collecting and uh, use it in new uh, and innovative ways. But they're all scared that you know GDPR is going to affect them and kind of stop that uh, profit stream. But what they're doing is they're kind of waiting right now, especially U.S. companies, to make any um, big decisions until there's some case law directing how far they can go uh, before they have to pull back. So I don't know if it's there's any real easy answer, and not until somebody maybe hits a newspaper or gets in trouble for a lawsuit uh, where people are going to really take action. Data brokers, like you mentioned, it is going to be a big challenge for them, especially when it comes to EU citizens and, and their personal data, because they basically will no longer be allowed without some form of explicit 
permission or a legitimate reason there otherwise to to just process that data for a different reason. It was collected for, you know, it could be for marketing. We, we collect this data for you to have an account with us and we're going to provide you this service for this reason. In the past, we'd probably try and send it off to our third-party providers and they'll say, look, we'll send it to our third-party providers, but the reasons are for them to market you information. Do you agree or not agree? And if someone says agree, then the data broker can um, can use it. But if they don't, then they can't. It's it's going to make uh, that part of the, those businesses probably have a lot of headaches in terms of adopting to this new legislation. Do you, do you think it'll actually change or do you think there'll just be a notice on everything and then you click it and then they say, all right, we'll do stuff with it? I think that's not allowed anymore uh, under the new legislation. From the way I've seen it and the people I've spoken to over the last couple of years, various GDPR sort of focused lawyers and consultants that work in privacy industry, they've, they've said, you know, this is this is game changer. You need to really, you can't just collect data for the sake of collecting it. The, the principle of data minimization is, is really the core principle behind here. You should only collect the data for a specific reason. You can only process it for that reason. And once that, that reason, that purpose has been fulfilled, you're obligated to delete it. You can't just keep it in case it's useful in the future for some other marketing or other reason. I guess I'm feeling very cynical about this. And I, I feel like, you know, I'm going to make a purchase on a site and then they're going to say like, all right, well, we're collecting your data for this purchase to put this credit card transaction through and then also for future marketing. And you're going to be like, okay. And then they're going to be able to future market to you. I think some of the interesting kind of cultural clashes from this is the fact that the new GDPR legislation is kind of here to unify 27 countries worth of individual data protection law. And in the UK and probably similar in the US, our, our approach to data privacy is not that strict. We're pretty 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 flexible around it. Companies collect data, we expect that. We know they're going to use it and market us stuff. We get that. But in other countries like Germany or, or the Netherlands, they're really strict about it, you know. Even companies themselves, they can't monitor what goes on in their their employees' uh, mailbox because it's not the corporate's information, it's the personal data. This employee, he's writing emails or she's writing emails. That's their data under German law. And so those kind of countries are the ones that wanted the GDPR legislation to become more strict. So I think it's a bigger challenge for organizations within countries like the UK and and, and the US that has uh, businesses and interactions with, with uh, you know EU member states. We, we have to adapt. And so I guess for us, it's hard to get our head around it. But for people in the Netherlands it's or the Germany, they, they're just like, yeah, this is, this is how it should be. Actually, that... That made me think of something that came up here in the U.S. around internet service providers a month or two ago. I think they decided not to enact some Obama-era rules about the ISPs collecting data on what you're doing over their connections and you know allow them to collect it, store it, and do whatever basically they want with it. So where would that uh, get impacted by GDPR? So a lot of us here work remotely. We're connected, you know, to the to the business network, or maybe we're not. Maybe we're not on VPN. But at what point, you know, let's say I email. Uh, you will. Whose data is that? Can my ISP collect that and monetize it for some other way that we're having contact, um, you know, emailing back and forth as a, you know, American citizen and uh, somebody under EU? I wonder how that'll affect some of those privacy regulations that um, that seem like they're probably not going to get implemented here in the U.S. either. The the ISP take. I mean, if that if it's got my IP address and my name associated with it in an email, th th those are t technically personally identifiable. I could be I could be singled out amongst however many hundreds of thousands of Will Priestleys there are in the world, and if that's being used for a monetized 
for reasons of monetization. So if that data was anonymized and you did it for statistics, that'd be fine. But if that was, if I was suddenly getting bombarded from a US ISP saying, hey, we got this great service for you. We think you'd find it really interesting. I'd probably be a bit bit annoyed by that. I find that quite intrusive. And that would be where I wouldn't, I wouldn't really appreciate that. Let's talk about data obligations for companies. Companies that are collecting and processing consumer data, they should also be responsible for how they do it. And by the way, one of our bloggers, Andy Green, interviewed Sue Foster, and she's also based in London. Uh, She's an attorney there with deep expertise in GDPR, and she really emphasized you, if you show your work like you did in high school math, that even if you got the wrong answer, if you showed your work, you'll still get partial credit for it. So I think that's something really important for companies to keep in mind. And as you mentioned, Will, um, data minimalization is a core principle, It's which is also an extension of the foundation uh, principle of privacy by design, which means that you're embedding privacy at the very beginning stages of your design. And Will, you mentioned data minimalization. So you have to collect and and protect the data and you limit the amount of time that you collected. And I really like this principle because in the past I used to be a hoarder and it doesn't bode well if you live in New York City. And one of the things that really helped me um, change my mindset was things that I owned five years ago might have been relevant to me back then, but today I'm a different person. I've grown and those things that used to be a part of my identity is is a little different and it's shifted. And if organizations mar- use that data to market, market their services and products with me, they might be talking to the wrong person. What are some suggestions you guys might have for companies that want to collect everything with the idea that it might help them later? Because I I think it's a cultural mindset right now. Everybody just wants to collect stuff. Like they used to have problem getting the data. Now that storage is so cheap, they're just like, ah, kid in a candy store. I'll, I'll reference the Gardner Conference again, too. And that was one of the topics that, that I found really interesting that one of the analysts talked about was that organizations have that mentality. They have that constant fear that if they delete something or if they you know take it offline, that they're going to be missing something. And it, it turns out that in some of the research that they've done, um, and he presented during the conference, that you know almost all cases, the data is almost completely useless after you know a relatively short period of time you know, you get, you know, one person that's accessed it, you know, after that kind of six month or whatever it is, life cycle window. So most data that gets collected um, has a very, very short lifespan, but it just ends up staying around forever because nobody has good intelligence on who's actually using it and what uh, and what for. So there's going to be, I guess, probably organizations are going to have to start doing some more business intelligence around it to determine if it is useful. And I think that GDPR is a great, is a great way to push some people forward with that uh, to kind of take an active role in managing uh, the, the data sprawl that we end up having uh, over time. And Killian, in, in that discussion, do they make a difference, I guess, a difference between marketing data and sort of internal customer data? In in that particular talk, they didn't really break the two of them out. It was specifically focused around unstructured data. So 
they didn't call it the different types, you know, if it was for marketing or for internal data. But wouldn't that be the same, though, that over time things just turn obsolete? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think maybe, and Mike, correct me if this is not where you're going, but I feel like marketing data, for example, has a much shorter lifespan than uh, customer data would be or internal uh, information. But at some point it does uh, age out. It's true. Well, I, I guess I was thinking of something as simple as, you know, like there's literally millions of people that use MailChimp. Uh, MailChimp's an email newsletter service mostly used for marketing. And you have very basic data that comes out of that. So this is like I sent this to all the subscribers and maybe I split that up in some different ways. Like I sent some of it to the U.S. people and some to people in the U.K., slightly different messages. And then I see like whether or not they opened it. And you can go in and see like right now from five years ago, I had a mailing list. I still occasionally email those people. I can go in and see like, oh, Killian opened this in October of, you know, 2012. And maybe that's useful. Maybe that's not. But it's still there. Like, does that need to be purged? Like, this is someone I'm still interacting with. There's still things happening. How does that fit into that scenario? I mean, that's a, that's a great question. And I think that kind of gets to the heart of the, you know, the business intelligence. I mean, from, from the business side, it, it, it is a data point, but does it matter? You know, and kind of going back to Cindy's point, if I opened that mail in 2012, maybe I was, you know, in the scenario working on something different or I was interested in a particular topic that might not be relevant. So I, I, I kind of go back to my point that probably marketing data is less relevant, especially, you know, in a multi-year situation. So I think what's even more complicated, though, is assessing the risk of data and protecting the data that you collect, especially sensitive data. This is a broad question, but what's a recommendation that you guys can give to companies? It's part of their job to do a risk assessment of their inventory. How do they approach this big, massive project? There's unstructured data, structured data. I think they just have to sit down around a table and, and you know, sort of take an analog approach, uh, just literally ask where, uh, map the data flows and how their business operates um, and understand where they expect it to be and, and why they collect the data and why they process it. So, you know, if, the, if there's some marketing data, they, they should be going around and saying like, so what do we typically ask for when we, we, we want, say, some consumer's information and why do we need it? You know, we're, if we're asking for, say, their data birth, How's that relevant to the service we provide them? They say, well, it's relevant because uh, we're going towards a, a specific demographic, an age demographic with this type of material, and this product goes to this other age demographic. Well, okay, we've justified why we're collecting it, therefore it stays. And, and like you said, instead of collecting everything and hoping it becomes useful, I think it's a beneficial exercise for the business to actually start to say, well, let's focus on exactly what we want to capture and why. And we could probably be a bit more efficient around our processing that data and not waste time sifting through stuff that's not relevant. I agree with what Will had said earlier on, making sure the data that you're collecting is relevant. But I also think you should take a look at it from a risk perspective of if we're capturing this data and this data is, if there's a breach of some kind, uh, people take this data and run with it, uh, what could be the potential damage to our customers and then the potential damage to you know, their, their security, their, their own well-being, and potentially our reputation as a result? I would definitely you know, keep that in mind as you go through and decide what's important and what's not important to capture. I mean, I think, I think you bring up a great point there, Chris. 
is that it's you know it's very much risk versus reward if there's if there's going to be you know much more potential for damage if it got lost or breached kind of stacking it up and, and identifying the level of protection that you need to place around it um, versus the level of, of reward or maybe you just don't collect it if um, if it could result in you know more more damage potentially if it got out so it's it's going to be a pretty big exercise to kind of do that risk matrix or uh, risk evaluation but I think it's I think it's absolutely critical and back to will's point um, maybe they don't capture it, maybe they don't store it and there could be other you know um, business upsides for that too again reduced risk of course but you know maybe reduced storage costs or reduced processing costs um, which could be a benefit I guess I'm still the, the skeptical cynical one about all of this I really don't think it's going to help cost that much like most of the time the data like the the actual cost of storing the data is turning to zero what's really difficult is still just figuring out what to actually do with it and while there's some notion of okay well we, we need to say exactly what we're going to do with it. I think there's so much wiggle room in there that like bad, bad people wanting to do bad stuff are still going to be able to do it. And I think it's going to be a lot of hassle for almost everyone else. That's part of the GDPR. How do we limit who sees data so that people who do want to figure out how to see Mike's special data about him getting surgery, uh, how do we prevent that from happening? I was going to say one thing I do think is interesting and very relevant and very useful is data classification, where I think there are, I, I think, much crisper means of describing those things and then taking actions on them. Um, so this is, I, I think there is a real difference between what needs to happen with medical data versus say like account data versus financial data. And that when you talk about things in that much more specific context, I think it makes a lot more sense and it makes it a lot easier to sort of reason about like where and who and what needs to happen with it. If there's a frustration I have with all this is that everything just feels like like a giant ball of mud um, mixed together with a lot of these discussions. Mike, just to ruin your afternoon, I just want to say I completely agree with everything you just said. No, it's a sure sign I got the wrong idea when Killian agrees with me. So, <laughs> so a huge important part of uh, being compliant with GDPR is record keeping. And it goes back to the recommendation from Sue Foster to have a recording of your processes, your activities, and, and the types of data you collect and time limits you have on storing your data. How do you see IT people handling this record-keeping process, especially ensuring that you're always protecting data? I mean, I think we can just replay uh, Mike's statements here about first classifying the data. Uh, you have to know what you're dealing with, you know, where it's coming from, and then assign um all of the different processes around it. Uh, you can't make smart decisions on on what to do with it if you don't understand what it is to start with. So figuring out you know the type of data to put the risk around it to decide you know what the the life cycle is for retention um, and the level of security you have to place around it and where you can store it. So I think that's the first big thing that they'll have to get their arms around is just figuring out what is out there, which is no easy task, of course. Okay, so let's say a breach unfortunately happens. You're supposed to notify the authorities within 72 hours after the discovery of a breach. How are currently companies discovering a breach now? Because I've read sometimes it takes weeks, if not months, to figure out that a breach happened. How, how do they know what's stolen? So, and I'll pose this kind of question to Will then in a second. I mean, in the U.S., at least in some of these major breaches, a lot of times, 
it's outside authorities. So, you know, the FBI or Homeland Security that's come to them and said, hey, listen, we saw your data go somewhere. I, I don't know if that's that's any different, Will, in the UK or or what, but it's an unfortunate fact of life here in the US that a lot of times um, it, it requires a third party to tell us that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I think it's the same everywhere. But uh, yeah, no, in the UK, it's usually the external sort of law enforcement agencies that will be informing. I, there's one, especially, I mean, organizations with particularly sensitive data, like military data, they, you'd think they'd know that that data was being leaked. But actually, I think uh, I was speaking to one customer last year, and they had GHCQ tapping on their shoulder saying, um, by the way, you should be looking at your environment, your networks, because you've you've had a data breach and you didn't even know it happened. You know, and this data has gone to certain nation states that they didn't want this this these military documents going to, or these designs, uh, so to speak. Uh, but it's also not just the external law enforcement agencies. Some data breaches are there just because they're published on the internet, right? Uh, they're they're up there. They're they're published for any criminal organization or hacktivist to just suddenly start trawling through and using. So. It is a challenge for businesses to detect when a data breach actually happens. I know one one business actually has a, they had quite a sophisticated they they you know this there's this new buzzword of, of user behavioral analytics and everything in the security industry. But I spoke to one one business. It's a, a sort of a, a telecoms organization that's quite European wide, and they actually had a level of UBA that I'd never heard of before. They actually had individuals in the business watching who's doing what in, in the organization, just kind of you know, a bit of sentiment analysis. Is this person happy? Do they normally do this kind of stuff? Just paying attention. And apparently just through this behavior that, that they started doing about, you know, humans watching their peers and colleagues, they discovered about five uh, affairs going on internally and various other kind of um, someone who had got somehow got hold of a was driving a car, or had a company car, but didn't even have a driver's license, and they, they're just covering all of this kind of stuff. It was it was pretty impressive, but um, you know, unless you're doing some sort of monitoring or auditing and understanding what what you know a, a normal circumstance looks like, you're never really going to understand when something illicit or unusual or potentially malicious is going on, like a data breach. I'll just pose a question to to everybody. Will will made me think of it. You know, at at what point do we you know click over to the dystopian future where we're all uh, just reporting each other for doing bad stuff? You know, just just a thought exercise for everybody. <laughs> I just reported you seconds ago, Killian. <laughs> I'm a shady character. I'm I'm hidden in shadow right now. For nobody, can, it's a podcast. They can't see me, but I am. <laughs> That goes back to limiting access to who should be able to see whether or not Mike got plastic surgery in Brazil. I think everyone should be able to see it. I'm proud. You know, I paid for happen. this new face. So. <laughs> well, thanks to Mike Buckby, Killian Engler, Chris Kaiser, and Will Priestley, and all our listeners for joining us today. If you want to follow us on Twitter to find some of the stories we're discussing, you can find us at infosec underscore podcast thanks and we'll meet up again next week bye thanks everyone bye bye thanks bye